want to ask you a question. Do you ever feel pressure to fit in? To be like everybody else, to look like them, to talk like them, to just fit in. Well, most of you know my story that when I became a pastor's wife, I had this unrealistic expectation and stereotype, and I did not feel like I fit in, so much so that it led to literal panic attacks. (laughs) Anybody else ever been there? I came to the end of that when I recognized that fear was actually rooted in pride, And it meant I cared more about what people thought than what Jesus thought. And once I shifted my focus, guess what? The fear dissipated. The panic attacks were gone. And the precious woman, Miss Elizabeth, who prayed over me when Steve was pastoring in Jackson, Tennessee, before we moved to Alabama, just went to be with Jesus this past week. 97 years young, Miss Elizabeth's funeral service on Saturday was such a testimony to a life well-lived and to not only the legacy of her children and grandchildren, but the blessing of the hundreds that she prayed over through the years. She knew the Lord. She knew that he was everything she needed, and she was able to share that with others. She was just a channel through whom the Holy Spirit was able to flow through unhindered and speak life and truth over other people's lives. So let me ask you, when we think about pressure to fit in, you know, when I thought back on that and the pressure I felt and how it led to anxiety and panic, it makes me wonder if what we're seeing now with social media and the rise in anxiety and stress and depression, especially among Gen Z, is not directly linked to social media because what are we doing there? We're trying to fit in, right? And before we kind of, you know, look down on Gen Z's and think it's all their problem, how many times, or let me, how many pictures do you take before you post one? (laughs) I don't have filters on my phone, but my girls do. It is amazing how much better you look when you're filtered. (laughs) Unbelievable. But, you know, I'm really trying to grow old with grace and just accept it. (laughs) Although I do color my hair. And it's so funny, I had a sweet lady come up to me the other day and tell me, please tell me you will never stop coloring your hair. (laughs) I said, I have a feeling one day I'm going to be one of those ladies with a long gray braid that I just twist up (laughs) on the back of my head because it's going to be easy. Okay, the classic movie, though, of somebody trying to fit in and be like is Runaway Bride. Now, most of you have probably seen that at some point. It's the movie that starred Julia Roberts. And in that movie, she bolted on several young men that she was engaged to literally while walking down the aisle. She took off. But what Richard Gere found out, who played the character of Ike, a journalist who comes to her small hometown to figure out what's going on with this runaway bride, was that she adapted to every young man she was engaged to. She liked the same eggs that they liked. She enjoyed doing the same things they enjoyed doing. And so he recognized this about her. And of course, as in all good romantic comedies, they end up falling in love, right? And so they decide to get married right then and there. And what does she do? She bolts on him as well. Well, a period of time passes and she shows up at his apartment. And this is what she said. She explained that she had been running because every other guy she was engaged to was only engaged to the idea she had created for them rather than the real her. But with Ike, she ran because even though he truly understood her, she did not understand herself. 
Sometimes we can try so hard to fit in that we really don't know who it is God has created us to be and what it is he's called us to do. So how can you, how can I break free from people-pleasing? Paul's letter to the Galatians is going to give us the instructions we need to finally break free. And I had to go back to one verse from last week's lesson, Galatians 1.10. If you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So once we become a believer, we are no longer tied to this world. We are to sever the ties to this world, and we are to live for Christ and Christ alone. That means we live to please him. Thus, he must be preeminent in our lives. That is why we study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that do not need to be ashamed. Ladies at Bellevue, we don't lower the bar. We raise the bar. Because as Moses was giving the word of God to the Israelites, what did he say? These words, they're not just words for you. They are your life. In God's word, because it is living and breathing, and it has been written for us, for God to reveal himself and to give us instructions for living a life that is not only pleasing to him, but it's for our well-being. We have to be in his word. We have to know what he says, and we then let his word change us. We have through Bellevue Women what Jen Wilkin calls the three-legged stool of active learning. Now, corporate worship, when we come together on a Sunday, is very beneficial because there's something God does when his body comes together and we worship him in spirit and truth and we hear the word preached to us and literally spoken over us, we leave changed. But that is not active learning. Where your greatest accountability and change takes place is in a small group. And the way we do it is intentional. We have you an independent study during the week. So what are you doing? I'm hope, hoping daily you're not just sitting down and trying to do it all at one time because you're not going to get as much out of it that way. It's set up to be done in five days. So if you're taking it a day at a time, you're immersing yourself in the word, you're thinking about it. As you go through your day, dwell on what God has been speaking to you, the verses that you've been reading and studying. And, and as this past week, we have a key word each week, as you've been thinking about grace and what grace means and how God has applied his grace to your life, you're changed by that. And then you come together in your small group. And what do you do in your small group? You go over some of the things that you've studied during the week and you talk about it and you share the things that God has revealed to you. You talk about even some of the questions that you still have. And hopefully when we come in here together now for the teaching time, Jean and I have been studying and digging into this. And so hopefully we're going to be able to help you connect even some more dots and see some things in the passage that maybe you didn't see. And then we should all leave here changed because we have been immersed in the word of God all week long. That is why we do what we do. It's the reason we do it the way we do it. It's very intentional. We need to leave changed. Well, I mentioned at the kickoff that God has given me a new definition for me of grace. And it is what God requires, God provides. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it, I mean, I have loved tracing it from Genesis all the way through. I'm going to give you just a few of them this morning. But you can begin to trace the rest of it the rest of the way through as God begins to show you as well everything he has required of us, he provides for us. Let's think back to Genesis chapter 3. We have God shedding the blood of the innocent, an innocent animal, and taking the skin of that animal to cover Adam and Eve after they sinned. Well, Genesis 3, 15, and then verse 21 tells us what was taking place at 
Thereafter, sin entered when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's one command in the garden. In 15, God is speaking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, Christ, shall bruise you on the head, a mortal wound, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then in verse 21, we see the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. We have here the promise and the provision. God sacrificed the first animal using that blood to cover their sin and establishing from the beginning, it takes the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty to cover sin. And then God literally covered them with the skin of that animal. My D group asked recently, so when it said they were innocent and they were naked and unashamed, how can you be naked and not be ashamed? (laughs) We can't fathom that, right? And I asked them, have you ever bathed a toddler? What do they do the moment you dry off? They take off, don't they? They run through the house completely nude, and they are not inhibited one iota. Why? It's innocence. It's innocence. And that's what Adam and Eve had in the garden in the presence of God before sin. That is what's going to be restored to us one day when we're in his presence. Then we move on to Genesis 6 through 9, and we encounter Noah Noah, who found favor with God. Noah, who obeyed God and built a gigantic boat. And God told him all of these animals, clean and unclean, are going to need to be stored on the ark. Well, now, Noah's not going to be able to go out and gather up all those animals. So what did God do? He required something of Noah, but then he provided. Genesis 7, 8, 9 says, Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female. Can you even imagine? God called them, and they went onto the ark by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Then we get to Genesis 22, and we encounter Abraham being tested by God. God calls him to take his son, his only son, up to Mount Moriah and to offer him there as a burnt offering, a living sacrifice. But God intervenes, and God provides what he required. Genesis twenty-two thirteen and 14 says, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And yes, he did, because Jesus Christ would be that living sacrifice on Mount Moriah for us was a beautiful picture, an Old Testament picture, a foreshadowing of Christ. Then we move on into Exodus, and we're introduced to Moses. God told Moses something very interesting when he called him at the burning bush and told him that he was going to deliver his people. He told him there in Genesis chapter 3, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. God was providing beforehand what he would require in the wilderness for the building of the tabernacle. Now, Moses had no idea, and those women had no idea at the time they were asking. When God so miraculously delivered them from Egypt through the ten plagues, 
the parting of the Red Sea, God coming down in power and glory on Mount Sinai and giving them his law, the commandments, how they were to live as God's people set apart. Yet God had already called upon them to ask for what he would require, providing it in advance. When we jump to the New Testament and we go to two of the verses most often used when we're sharing the gospel, Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, we see God's provision once again. What does it tell us? Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Nobody is excluded. Everyone has sinned. And 6.23 tells us the wages, the paycheck, the penalty of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We see God's ultimate provision in Christ. God demands holiness and provided it for us through his son, Jesus, who entered the world through the womb of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and died an atoning death on the cross, paying our sin debt. He paid the debt we could never pay that we might have our sins not only covered, but wiped away. And we become now the very righteousness of God in Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus that has been credited or applied to your account. But because we're in Christ, now we're on this journey home, and it's a sanctification journey. So the Holy Spirit living within us is slowly bringing about the very holiness of Christ in our lives as we surrender to him day by day. And ultimately, we will be made holy as he is in glorification, the Bible's very clear that when we see him, we will be as he is. Paul opened the letter to the Galatians, blessing them with grace. Did we have any idea? All that was involved in that grace word and peace. Peace is so much more than just absence of conflict. Peace is shalom. And the ancient Hebrew concept of peace rooted in the word shalom meant wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity, carrying with it the implication of permanence. So what is it telling us? Grace. God requires what God requires, God will provide. Peace. God's shalom, his well-being, his flourishing. You've got the peace of God and peace with God right now, and you will have it in its fullness for all of eternity. That is quite a blessing. And now we're going to move into what Paul is going to share with them about his revelation. And it came from Christ. It didn't come from man. He didn't learn about Jesus from man. He encountered Christ himself. We know he encountered him on the road to Damascus. He was actually saved, I believe, in Damascus when Ananias came to visit him and shared with him about how he was going to have to suffer for the gospel. And he called on the name of the Lord. Acts 22 tells us he was saved and he was baptized. And then he does what? He goes away for three years into Arabia. How long were the disciples with Jesus on earth? Three years. Paul's going to be out in the desert alone with the Lord, being taught by him for three years before he comes back to Damascus. Then we know he goes into Jerusalem for 15 days. He meets with Peter. He meets James. And then he goes to um, uh, Cilicia. He's going to leave and go, and he's going to actually be the pastor of the church in Antioch. He's going to be there for 14 years. And probably when he comes back in Acts chapter 15, it may have been his third visit 
to Jerusalem, but that's why he wasn't known by face by the people there. They had just heard about him because Paul's been out sharing the gospel. It was from Antioch where he would be called to go on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. So let's look at his revelation in Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Paul said, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation is a term expressive of the fact that God has made known to men truths and realities which men could not discover themselves. And we know that. It's just like God showing me, which is a truth that I'm sure a lot of other people have had. But isn't it awesome when he reveals some truth to you that you see for the first time? Now, I think I knew intellectually that what God requires of us, he provides. But just the fact that God put it together like that for me as I was studying and revealed to me that, Don, that actually is grace. It's not just unmerited favor. It's him providing for me what he requires for me to be in right relationship with him. That is his grace. And his grace we have applied to us that salvation, but we also have his grace on a daily basis for whatever it is we're going to face. Whatever it is you're facing right now, whatever God is requiring of you at this moment in your circumstance, he will provide for you through his Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And God must unveil the gospel for any of us to be saved. The Lord pursues us, he calls us, he convicts us of our sin, and we must choose to turn to him instead of running from him. And you know what? That's a daily choice. After salvation, we have to choose daily to turn away from the world and turn to him, to do exactly what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, to deny myself daily, take up my cross and follow him. That is how I submit to and apply his grace on a daily basis. Paul walked by faith and he listened and obeyed the voice of the Lord. God spoke and ladies, he is still speaking. He speaks primarily through his word, but he also speaks through the inner witness of his spirit. He speaks through creation, and he also speaks to us through others. I love the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, listen to these words. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now listen to what Andrew Murray wrote about that passage of scripture. He said, each word carries with it all the life of God all his saving power and love. God speaking in his son, surely they who have begun to know him will be ready to cast aside everything for the sake of hearing him. But the words of God, they are creative deeds. Now listen to this. They give what they speak. When God speaks in his son, he gives him to us, not only for us and with us, but in us. That's why we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. So when you read the Bible, when you pray, spend time listening for his still small voice as you go throughout your day. Ask the Lord to speak to you and to allow you to have a word of life and hope to speak over someone or to someone in Jesus' name. Now, Paul moves from 
letting them know very clearly the revelation he's received. His understanding of salvation came directly from Christ. And he's going to just reflect for a moment back on his pedigree, if you will. He says in verses 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He goes on to tell us a little bit more in Philippians 3, 3 through 6. He says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what's he saying now? It's no longer physical circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart that God is looking for. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. It was not his Jewish pedigree that put him in right standing with God. It was his encounter with the living Jesus Christ and him calling upon his name and being saved and changed from the inside out. So it goes on to explain to us his conversion and how he began to proclaim the word of God. Let's pick back up in verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, so that's that three years with the Lord, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Obviously, these false teachers had been trying to discredit what he had done. So that's why he had to emphasize that here. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. They kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul's life was radically changed by Christ. There was no denying it. Ladies, salvation is by grace through faith. Grace alone saves us. It's not salvation plus good works, church membership, you name it. You fill in the blank. It is Jesus alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that we are saved. But that's also how we are to live. It is by grace through faith in Christ. We live every day by grace. And what did we say grace is? What God requires, God provides. So since we're saved by it and we are to live by it, I want you to know, whatever you're walking through at this very moment, whatever God is requiring of you, he will provide. He's already provided through Christ and his Holy Spirit and his living word. If you will just turn to him. You know, Jesus taught us in John 15 that apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. Do we really believe that? I mean, how often do we try to do it on our own, right? Instead of surrendering to him and confessing, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. Actually living out what we sang this morning.
I have everything I need because you are everything I need. To know that and make it a part of who we are, to actually live it out. There is a song that I have been playing on repeat. I've probably listened to it five or six times this morning. As many of you know, last Tuesday, just as we finished Bible study, we found out about the tragic plane crash with some of the members from Harvest. Two of the wives are good friends of mine. Uh, One of the young women happens to be in my current discipleship group. And as we sang the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, Sunday morning in the first service, tears were streaming down my face, and I was literally praying these lyrics over those families. Because what God is requiring of them right now, we can't even comprehend. And yet that's the grace you have, not before you need it, but the moment you need it. What God is requiring of you in that moment, he provides for you through the power, the comfort, and the provision of his spirit. If you're not familiar with that, let me just read some of the lyrics to you. Listen to how it starts. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. For whoever needs to hear that this morning, he's holding on to you. He's he's got you. He is for you. He is, as Dana said this morning, singing over you. He delights in you. And the enemy lies to us. The accuser of the brethren wants to come in and condemn us and make us believe we're not loved by God. And yet he lavishes his love upon us by providing for us everything that he has required. If you've got your workbook, would you open to page 19? It's in our introduction. And there are a couple of Warren Wearsby quotes in it that are just too good for us not to emphasize. About halfway down the book, or the page there, you're going to see Warren Wearsby asserts that Galatians is a dangerous book. And he goes on to explain because it exposes the most popular substitute for spiritual living that we have in our churches today, legalism. Millions of believers think they're spiritual because of what they don't do or because of the leader they follow or because of the group they belong to. Now, what is that if it's not people-pleasing? 
Legalism is simply people-pleasing. It is us trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves because of the group we're attached to or the checklist that we're able to check off. The Lord shows us in Galatians how wrong we are. Anytime we depend upon the flesh, we are not going to be able to do it because apart from him, we can do nothing. We have to completely and wholly cast ourselves upon him and trust his spirit who lives within us. He shows us how right we can be only if we let the Holy Spirit take over. Now look at that next quote. When the Holy Spirit does take over, there will be liberty, not bondage. Cooperation not competition. Glory to God, not praise to man. The world will see true Christianity and sinners will come to know the Savior. There's an old-fashioned word for this, revival. Don't get caught up in the cancel culture on social media. Don't attack people. Stand for righteousness and truth with grace for people, with love the same love God lavished upon us when while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we cleaned up our act, not when we deserved it, but when we were at our worst, he died for us. And because he has provided for us all that he requires, how can we not come alongside somebody else and be that encouragement to draw them to Jesus, to share the grace of God with them? How can we get puffed up in legalistic pride, thinking we have arrived, that sets us up for a fall. That's <laughs> exactly what that will do. And I truly believe that's what's going on in a lot of Christian circles today. Why so many Christians and even churches are so impotent. It's because they're depending upon the flesh. They're wanting to be relevant to fit in to the world, to the culture. That is not what Christ has called us to. He has called us to be counter-cultural. He has called us to be grace givers, to speak life, to love others into the kingdom, to see them birthed by the Spirit so that they can experience not only abundant life now, but eternal life forever with Jesus Christ. One of the things that Kenan Vaughn, the pastor of Harvest, who survived the crash, shared in a letter that he wrote for Bill Garner, their associate pastor's funeral this Saturday, was remarking about the countenance on Bill's face just before they crashed. Do you know what I thought of the moment someone told me that? Do you remember Stephen? What did they say about his face? That he looked like an angel. His countenance was changed. Well, why? What changes a person's countenance like that? The scripture tells us. Who did he see? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. We just read in Hebrews. Where was Jesus? Seated. I believe he stood in honor of the first Christian martyr. And Jesus said in John 14... I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I will come for you. Guess who's coming for you? The day you see him, either through the doorway of death or in the rapture, Jesus. Jesus. And your eyes will see him. You will behold the one you have loved. Oh my, could he give us anything greater than that? What incredible hope. 
what surety we have because he's given us his promise and his provision in Christ. And so we know it is true. That's what faith is. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I know that I know because I know my Jesus. He has revealed himself to us. And Jesus shows us what God is like. He has grace and love. And he gives us everything we need for every single moment. What would happen if we all left here today asking the Lord to help us live for him and not for man? I'm going to tell you the first thing you experience, the pressure would be off. <laughs> A lot of anxiety would roll off is what would happen. Amen. Because what God requires, he provides. I will make a promise to you. If you're in Jesus Christ, he will hope you fast. Amen. 